Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 10th, 2017, and this is episode 1980 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Monday. It's a listener feedback show. This is where you send emails to me with TSPC in the subject line, and then article for Jack, comment for Jack, question for Jack, whatever, something like that. But put TSPC in the subject line, and that will make sure that it gets called out and into my special box, and it will get par- be part of my screening for content for the show. The email to send that to, of course, is jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. What are we going to talk about today? Well, I have to do it, even though I don't really want to go into it. Uh, the Syrian uh, uh, retaliation, I guess you're calling it, from Trump, or the bombing of the Syrian airport by Donald Trump, My thoughts on that. I have to cover it because when I get asked more than 20 times, and this one's about 200, to say something about something on the air, even if it's something I don't really want to go into, um, I do it. So we will do that, even though it's a, a bit more political than I like to get anymore. I'll do it because it's important that we deconstruct this stuff. Um, I will direct you to uh, a video by Ron Paul and Stefan Molyneux. Uh, if you want more of this, if you want to beat the same facts up over and over, just restate them in different ways until you're content with it. But I'll give you my opinion in as concise uh, a, a way as I can uh, about such a complex thing, which really is not as complex as they have led you to believe. Uh, next up, I have a, let's get off of the politics then, right? We have a question on plants and foliar feeding. Are there any you shouldn't foliar feed? An MD, a doctor, person doctor, though, follows up on heartworm medicine for your dogs. I'll take his word at this. I know this guy pretty well. Uh, deciding on when to buy silver and Bitcoin, or frankly, any currency or commodity. Talk about that a little bit. Would you like to be an Alaskan oyster farmer? Seriously, I'm not kidding. There's an opportunity to do that. I'll tell you about it. It'll be a real quick segment. Question on caliber selection for a deer slash elk round. It'd be a lot easier if it was a deer round. We had elk. Yeah, they're bigger animals. We need to think a little bit more. Uh, Bloomberg says the death of retail is accelerating and moving faster than ever before. I have a, a pretty good video clip to play for you as audio, uh, as you might imagine on a show like this. Uh, and then I'll give you some comments on that. I have a question on managing wild blackberry. And should you even bother with any kind of management whatsoever? Just let it do what it does. Um, thoughts on worm bin composting and converting a typical compost bin into a worm bin. Uh, fishing and camping with a canoe. Some questions on that. And a Dr. Phil moment to end the show. A sticky wicket of getting a property from family members as part of a pre-inheritance inheritance and uh, moving and blah, 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 blah. I almost didn't take this one, but I thought, you know, it's probably a good item for discussion and it may help people weed through their own various, you know, we'll call it political stuff that happens at home. Right, Because politics is not just about the ass clowns in Washington. Politics is the interaction and struggle for power between individuals that are forced to cohabitate and deal with each other. That's what politics really is. You can quote me on that, maybe clean it up a bit, I don't know. <laughs> Before we get into that, though, let's go hear from our uh, two sponsors of the day. Guys, you know, prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food, water, shelter, security, and energy, and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. 
in that effort, ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done. Everything, and I do mean everything for your prepping needs. Ready-made, ready to go at ReadyMadeResources.com. Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. And today's TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is JC Custom Slings. They provide nylon three-point and traditional two-point slings for all popular rifle and shotgun models. JC uses polymer buckles, which are lighter, quieter, and have a better bite than metal. Check out JC's listing on the TSP Business Directory. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We have the Washington Post exposes an eight-year-old heroin addict and a liar contributed by Alex Shrugged for the year 1980, because the episode is 1980. We also have staggering effects from Southpaw Ben. And we have elected officials are caught taking bribes from, quote, Arabs, end quote, from Alex Shrugged. Notable births this year. Chelsea Clinton, daughter of U.S. President Bill Clinton and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Yeah. In sports, Venus Williams, the tennis player. In movies, uh, Channing Tatum from White House Down, Macaulay Culkin from Home Alone, and Christina Rissi from The Addams Family. In music, Christina Aguilera, Michelle Williams, Jessica Simpson, who also played the du Daisy Duke and the Duke Dukes of Hazard. In TV, Ben Foster, Ben Savage, and Kim Kardashian all bored this year. This year in film, The Empire Strikes Back. Luke, I am your father. I almost laughed out loud, Alex Rugg. Airplane, slapstick comedy mocking the movie Airport in 1975. I love that movie, by the way. The Blues Brothers, I also loved that movie, which was Belushi and Aykroyd on a mission from God. The Shining, Jack Nicholson plays an axe murderer. Here's Johnny, amazing movie. Fame, uh, tracking the lives of students in high school performing arts. Wasn't into that one. The Gods Must Be Crazy. A Bushman is on a quest to return a magic Coke bottle to the gods. Extremely weird and funny. I like that. An Urban Cowboy. Mechanical bull riding becomes a fad. It was an okay movie. Uh, this year in TV, the NFL Draft is televised on ESPN for the first time. Magnum P.I. comes out. Tom Selleck eventually will become the uh, president of the NRA. Eddie Murphy first appears on Saturday Night Live. The sketch is entitled In Search of the Negro Republican. Yes, that's what it was called. And closed captioning begins. A telecaption adapter is required at that point. This year in music, I am, I am a Woman in Love from Barbara Streisand. Won't You Take Me to Funky Town from Lips, Inc. And John Lennon is shot dead. The murderer gets 20 years to life. His next parole review is in 2018. This year in video games, the first Arcade Awards prize goes to Space Invaders. The award is called the Arky. Nameco releases Pac-Man. It will be the best-selling game of all time. Infocom releases Zork 1, a text-based adventure game developed by the folks at MIT. And distribution of video arcade games is standardized. Each new game is uploaded to a standard game cabinet using a Delta East Deco cassette. A cassette, yes. In other news, the rescue of American hostages in Iran fails. The U.S. boycotts the Summer Olympics in Moscow. And the Rubik's Cube is an overnight success, but it was invented in 1970. Bit of a lesson there. I'm going to read elected officials are caught taking bribes from Arabs. 
What we have, what have we come to if turning down a bribe is heroic? U.S. Senator Larry Pressler, Republican South Dakota, considered the hero of the Abscom bribery scandal. One U.S. Senator and six U.S. Congressmen are caught selling their influence to the Arabs, except it wasn't Arabs. It was the FBI running a sting operation. The FBI had been looking into real estate fraud and caught a con man. Instead of convicting him, they made a deal where he would continue his scam acting as a front for Arab money. The idea was to catch other con men and shady businessmen. What they actually caught was the mayor of Camden, New Jersey, and a state senator attempting to sell influence for an Atlantic City casino license. These two knuckleheads then proceeded to bring in other politicians, which included the federal officials mentioned previously. It is all caught on video as FBI agents dressed as Arab sheiks hand over tens of thousands of dollars to esteemed public officials. Guess which, guess which political party is heavily represented? There are a few who come close to taking a bribe, but the FBI runs out of time as word gets out the sting operation is underway. The most un, the most notable of unindicted co-conspirators is Congressman John Murtha, Democrat, Pennsylvania. He was able to convince the prosecutors he was trying to steer Arab money to legal investments within his congressional district. He agreed to testify against his fellow congressmen. It's a fine upstanding scumbag if there ever was one. That's my view on that. My take by Alex Shrug, Republican Le Senator Larry Pressler, who was also approached by the so-called Arab investors. But when the conversation turned to something that sounded illegal, he balked. He confronted these Arab investors, and after their meeting was over, he immediately called the FBI to report these guys. Who were the FBI, after all? He was caught on tape being honest, and for this he was called a hero. He couldn't believe it. I can sympathize. I get praise sometimes for doing things, things that seem part of my general requirement of living, like raking up the leaves that I know are from my tree that the wind has scattered across my neighbor's lawn. And my neighbor, two doors down, she comes running out to thank me and gives me cookies. For what? Raking up the mess my tree made in her yard? It's once a year. It's not that big a deal. I took the cookies. I can't seem ungrateful. I gave them to the kids across the street, and everyone is happy. Um, I think if there, is, if there is anything that you can say to prove how sad American politics are, It is that for doing the right thing, we look at an elected official as a hero. It's pathetic. And you know who made him into a hero? It wasn't Joe Blow on the street that said, what? He was offered a bribe and didn't take, care of it, take it? Oh, wow, he's a hero. The media made him a hero. The media made him a hero. Hold on to that thought for when we talk about Syria in just a little bit. All right, folks, I want to remind you one more time about the Members Support Brigade. That's the way you can help support this show by becoming a member of our MSB. So go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. But I want to give you six of the more than 60 discounts we get today. All of these pertain to growing your own food. Marsh Creek Farmstead can give you discounts on the Irapan and Comfrey Cuttings. Bob Wells Nursery gives you 10% off all of their offerings, bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines that grow food in your own backyard. And then we have four great seed companies that all do really great discounts. Counts for you. NE Seeds, Terroir Seeds, the Victory Seed Company, and High Mowing Seeds. If you take advantage of those with your homesteading activities throughout the year, those alone will probably pay for your membership. And hey, you know what? There's still over 60 more companies offering discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. So get by the survivalpodcast.com today, click on members to learn more, and sign up. And if you've let your membership last lapse, remember now would be a great time to come on back to the Survival Podcast MSB. All right, so let's talk about Syria as our lead story. I, I, I'll tell you what, the reason I really didn't want to do this 
is not because it's political, because I'll cover the political whenever it's necessary. It's because for about 96 hours now, every time you turn on any media outlet whatsoever, it's serious, 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 shut up. Just shut up. They're acting like this is the first shots of World War III. It is not. It is not. It is not. It is not. Oh, for the love of God, it is not. They're acting like we're in a full-scale, uh, ongoing escalation of war with Syria. We are not. We are not. We are not. We are not. And they're acting like, well, President Trump did the right thing. He did not. But, you know, he may have should have gone to Congress for approval. No, not required. I don't care even if Ron Paul says it, not required, because if that's the case, every military action that's been taken by U.S. presidents for the last hundred years without prior congressional approval was unconstitutional. And it may technically be, but the case, what you would call case law over time and the legal precedents over time have basically said, Congress, since you're not going to do anything about that, then this is where the threshold is versus where you think and you talk about the threshold being. So this is Congress is making that the president doesn't need authorization for this because they've never called a single president to the carpet ever. And if they did now, they'd have a very weak case. They, they really would because it would be compared to every time a president has bombed something because something pissed off a president in the past. Okay, but let's talk about what the narrative is here. The narrative is Assad... On the, on, the, on the eve of victory, with even the, the hawkish cabinet members of the Trump administration going, well, maybe we could just let this go. You know, kind of wiping ISIS out of Syria, you know. Uh, we really don't want to, you know, our president's on the, uh, the, the hook of saying we really don't want to go sticking guns and bombs in there, and it's a mistake, and it looks like things are getting wrapped up, and uh, stability's returning to the... Uh, on the eve of this, Assad says, you know what? Let's get some really horrible nerve agents, and let's bomb some civilians in an area with no strategic importance to us whatsoever, and does it. That's the narrative. Now, that's not how they're explaining it to you, but that's what they're saying. If you ask anybody in our government, what was the strategic point of, of using this nerve agent on these people in this area? What was, what was Assad, what was the Syrian military trying to accomplish by doing this? You would have a very long silence, and if it stayed quiet long enough, you might hear the chirping of crickets in the background. Because there is absolutely, flatly no answer to this question. And of course the response is, well, he's a crazy dictator. The man's been president of a nation for 17 years with half the world hating him and wanting him out, with people in his own country trying to kill him, basically a country that's like some developed areas and then duct taped together third world areas, and he's maintained power for 17 years like that. If you're a flat nut that does stupid shit like snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and alienate your one real ally in Russia by, by using a nerve gas on civilians for no strategic region for reason, you don't maintain power for 17 years in that situation. The man's not nuts. Right? The guy's actually, I, I bet you've never heard this before. Do you know he's a doctor like an MD? And he actually did relief work before he took over from his father? Now, I'm not saying the guy's a saint. I'm just saying this whole, like, completely whacked out nut job that just bombs people because it amuses him, right? It doesn't really add up. And I know somebody said, well, Mengele was a doctor. Mengele was a nut. Mengele didn't travel around doing relief work either, okay? 
So it just doesn't meet the narrative. So what do I think happened? Okay, first I'm going to put on the table. We don't know. So anything could have happened. So it is possible for some whacked out reason that Assad did it. Okay? That's, but to me, that's the least likely thing. To me, that the most likely thing that happened is somebody's bombs hit something that was storing this shit or somebody stole this shit and had it in this area and screwed something up and set off the bombs that had it in it or most likely, this is what I think is the most likely scenario, Rebel forces, whether the ISIS rebel forces or whether they're the quote-unquote moderate ISIS, uh, that's what I should call moderate ISIS, but the moderate uh, Islamic forces, the Islamic rebel forces, one or the other, seeing that they were about to have the life snuffed out of them by combined Syrian and Russian forces, got a hold of this shit and set it off in a civilian area with the intent of bringing the United States into the conflict because as long as, as Assad is being attacked then they benefit. Either one of those two groups benefits. The reason I say it's the most likely is whenever something happens, it doesn't really make sense. When you look at it and go, this just doesn't make sense. Because Assad doing it doesn't make sense. The first question to finding the likely culprit is to say in this situation, and this would be basic police work, who has the greatest motive? Who, who does this most benefit? Does it benefit Russia? Does it benefit Assad? It doesn't even benefit the United States. It might benefit some interests within the United States who are always clamoring for war. Okay, But it doesn't directly benefit the United States. I don't even see this as like a false flag. You send the, the, the spec ops troops and the black troops or whatever, the black ops troops from the CIA behind the scenes that do it. This doesn't make sense. The people that most likely benefit are either the rebels or the ISIS rebels. So there, there, there would be suspect, suspect number one in an investigation, which we haven't done. Basically, oh, he did it. Okay, he did it. Boom, we'll just throw some cruise missiles at him. We, we, we don't know shit. We basically said, and Trump correctly said, we can't take refugees from Syria because we don't know what the hell's going on in Syria. The place is a mess. You can't validate anything. But, it, you know, two hours after this thing happens, we know conclusively. See, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. Now let's talk about the strike itself. He sends like 58 cruise missiles in. <clears throat> Blows up a few buildings and stuff like that. Doesn't touch a single runway. Doesn't touch a runway. Within a day, planes are taking off in and out of that airport again. Jets. Okay. And quite a few of the missiles apparently missed their targets. Hmm, isn't that special? Isn't that special? Do you know what I think this was? This was, you know what we're going to do? We're going to throw some missiles over there. And I'll tell you what, the ones that missed, they didn't land on anybody's houses. They landed in empty space and did no damage at all. Isn't that lucky? Hold on a second. Let me tell you something about Tomahawk uh, cruise missiles. They don't miss unless, they, they don't miss. You know, maybe one in a hundred might miss a little bit. But a significant number out of 50-odd ones, no. It doesn't happen. They hit where they're aimed. 
If they want to take a cruise missile and put it straight through my window right now and land a warhead in my lap while I'm on this microphone and get rid of me, they won't miss. That's how accurate. If they wanted to come down Nine Mile Road and take a right turn into my driveway and then come through my, uh, my, uh, my living room, they won't miss. They don't miss. But they couldn't hit a runway. This was a show of force. It was basically Trump acting like daddy and Junior's acting like a little brat in the middle of the store. And right in the middle of the store, daddy takes Junior, lowers his pants to bare ass, and smacks him one time in the ass. Not even hard enough to hurt him. Doesn't really hurt Junior. Not even a red mark. But he's embarrassed. And then daddy pulls up Junior's pants, grabs him by the ear, and walks him out the door. That's what this was. And some of you might go, well, that's what's needed. That's not what's needed. Playing around with hundreds of millions of dollars of military hardware and killing people to embarrass a, a world leader that you oppose is not smart, especially when that world leader is aligned with one of only two other real-world superpowers that have nuclear armament uh, uh, that is you know, equal to your own, that being Russia and China, of course. This is... This doesn't make this is a dumb move. This is a dumb move. But it's not a dumb move politically. Now, I don't know that Trump is a skilled enough politician to work this out. But I believe the people around him are. And the people telling him what to do are. And you haven't ha heard a single word about Russia, uh, the, the Trump connection to Russia at all, except, well, this kind of, you know, you know, defeats that narrative. Right? On left wing. CNN, MSB, NBC, etc. He's being praised for what he did. Hillary Clinton said he did the right thing. One, I can't remember the guy's name, but some guy on the, on the CNN said that seeing that attack was a thing of beauty. This is the anti-war liberal left. It's a thing of beauty to see people getting blown up. All right. The, 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 the magic of this is Trump is now a strong man. You hear that before. The whole narrative, the Russian connection narrative, is just blown to shit. And that's, that's about all he gets out of it. Because now he's got to figure out what to do next. And continuing on in Syria, I don't think it's something Donald Trump wants to do. So, this is where all, most of what I've said so far, you've probably heard other alternative media people say. This is where I'll deviate. There could be, a stroke of political genius in this. Now, let me explain something. I can say something's genius even if I don't agree with it. Okay? This is hard to understand. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound like I'm praising this. I think we should just leave everything alone in the Middle East. Everything we touch, we make worse. But I understand that the politics going on here between Russia and the United States and what Russia wants and what the United States has to have to let Russia have what it wants. Okay? So again, when I say genius, please understand the context. So, Trump launches a few warheads, you know, on tomahawks and, and blows up a couple buildings. Doesn't even take out the planes. They're all moved the hell out of the way. They know it's coming in advance. And we know that now, too. Um, Russia moves its troops away from the airport. Everybody watches a few buildings blow up. Some schmucks have to stay in there and get blown up just so there can be, you know, a, a cost to it. Because Syria doesn't really care that much for the lives of its people, honestly. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying Assad's a nice guy or anything. 
And uh, so that all ends. And now, oh, the conflict, the conflict, oh, the terrible conflict. Russia and the United States, oh, my God, a shooting war could break out. It could be World War III. Everybody's shit in a brick. Right before we have this major diplomatic outreach going on with, with Russia. We go in and we say, hey, you guys, look, um, you know, we understand what this is really all about. You want your pipeline. Oh, they didn't tell you that? There's a pipeline supposed to go through Syria that moves Russian oil and gas to Europe. You didn't know this. Oh, they don't tell you that on TV. There's also a, 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 a pipeline backed by the U.S. that's supposed to go through Syria. And those two pipelines actually cross each other at some point. Well, Putin wants his pipeline. Putin also wants some bases and some stuff that's in place to remain in place. Now, let's think of how this works. Let's say what Trump really wants is to be able to say to Putin, you take because he said as much as this in the campaign. Let Putin go in there and wipe him out, and then we'll just you know part you know we'll just be part of it as the world community. If there's any little cleanup that needs to be done, maybe we'll help with that. So what if Trump had come into this whole thing and said, you know what, I don't like Assad anymore than anybody else does, but it's the only secular government in the Middle East. What we should do is let Russia do what I just said. Wipe them out, you know, clean them up. Let Russia have their pipeline, we'll have our pipeline, everybody gets along. And, and, and let Russia oversee the nastiness. We, we, we've, had, we've done enough. Let Russia do this. You know what they'd say? He just delivered Syria to Putin. See, I told you. He even put Russian salad dressing on his salad. He's a Russian. That's what they would say. But all this tension builds up. They might even go and say, we need you guys to even posture a little bit more. Let's, let's make sure nothing happens. Let's make sure that the, the forces we're moving around are in on it a little bit. At least the commanders. Nobody gets a hairy trigger finger none. We don't want any kind of incidences. Let's understand each other. We'll ratchet the tension up a little bit. And then how about this, guys? How about you guys agree that Assad's got to go? You guys decide Assad's got to go. You guys decide to put in New elections. Let Assad run. See if he wins. But you're gonna you're gonna run the elections like you did in Crimea. Hint, hint. Wink, wink. And then we'll see how it works out. But we get our pipeline. You get to keep your shit, and we'll back down away from this to a better relationship in the future. You don't think they orchestrate shit like that? And if the people that are running Trump, and that's what Trump wants, if if he's telling them what he wants, and they're trying to tell them how to get there, that might be exactly what this is. I'm not saying it is. But it's the, see, you go back to what does the guy in charge want? And then what is the most likely way to get there? See, because a politician doesn't just have to accomplish a goal. They have to accomplish it and cover their ass so that they're seen as doing the right thing by the people that are going to reelect them. And when does a president start running for reelection? Uh, November 8th in the year that they win the election. That's when the, the reelection campaign began before Trump was sworn in. A lot of the stuff that was going on, the whole, you know, making calls to CEOs and bringing back jobs before he was even elected. It wasn't just so he had political capital when he got in. That's already planning out to 2020. That's what that is. That's already planning to be a strong force in the midterms. And if, 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 if Trump did the exact same thing, two different ways, if he came in right from the gate, got cozy up with the Russians, said, look, this is what you want. We don't really have any problem with this. You guys aren't really a threat to us. We're not a threat to you. Where are ships? It's all bullshit. We both have nuclear bombs. It can annihilate the world. We, we stood face-to-face -face with that for five decades. We're not going to do that shit either. There's going to be no war between us. We don't. Let's just hash this out. You get what you want. We get what we want. 
he would get slaughtered. But if there's a little tension, a little potential showdown, and then calmer heads have to work deals out, well, now he's a freaking hero. And that's what I think is possibly going on here. Or it could just be, I sent some missiles over there to clear the air so nobody would bother me anymore, a la Bill Clinton, a la President Bush, a la President Obama. Okay, now here's the hypocrisy, and I can't leave this subject without bringing the hypocrisy out. Do you know what I'm seeing now? I thought they were all dead. I thought they died. Anti-war leftists. The anti-war left have crawled out from... They, they said that there was memes about this in January, right? But there was no anti-war left in January. I didn't see any of them. There's a little talk here, a little talk there. Blah, 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 bullshit, bullshit. But now, now the people that never had a single thing to say when Barack Hussein Obama dropped over 26,000 bombs on people in his last year, his last one year in office, Trump drops 53. Oh, shit. This is abomination. Well, the, the Congress wasn't involved in what? People have no credibility. And you people on the right that were opposed to a lot of uh, Obama's illegal wars, etc., that are back in this, you have no credibility either. The only way you have credibility is if you're consistent. And the people that are consistent in this, that are saying the things that I say now, are libertarians, voluntarists, and anarchists. You want to blow somebody up, they better be trying to blow you up, or you don't blow them up. You want to shoot somebody, they better be shooting at you, or you don't shoot them. You don't involve yourself in the affairs of other nations unless they pose a clear and present danger to your own. And Syria poses no danger to the United States at all. And, the, and when they say, well, there's ISIS in Syria, and that's who Assad is bombing, shooting, and killing. He's killed more ISIS freaking people than we have. We're out of our minds. Unless we just want to look like we're out of our minds to sculpt a narrative. Because, believe it or not, I think the people in charge, I don't think, see, this is where, again, I think they're very smart people. Notice I didn't say they're very good. You can be smart and evil bastard. If you've ever noticed in comic books, most of the villains are doctors of some sort, right? Okay, so you could be really smart and an evil bastard. But I think they know what they're doing. And I think there's lots of backdoor conversations going on between Russia and the United States right now. Lots of it. But it's all okay, because now it's official. It's not before the guy got sworn in. And it turns out he likes ranch dressing, not Russian dressing. We know that now because he killed some people because it was politically expedient to do so. So those of you who have said to me, you're not very critical of Trump. You were critical of Obama all the time. Well, now I have something to be critical for, don't I, that actually can be well thought and articulated instead of, I hate him, he's a racist, other stupid shit like that. And I'm sure this won't be the last time in the next four years that I'll have a chance to beat up on Donald Trump. This one, 100% wrong all the way, but I've told you what I think the motivation is behind it, and I'll tell you something else. Even though I don't agree with it, I think it just might work. Okay, this one comes from Mike. Mike says, is there any plant I shouldn't foliar feed? I took your advice on show number 1957, bought Dr. Earth All-in-One Fertilizer, Garrett Juice Plus, and Liquid Kelp to foliar feed my annual veggies. I have a list of perennials. I want to know if it would be good to feed them the same. I have artichoke, asparagus, blackberry, blueberry, ground cherry, sand cherry, By the way, ground cherry is not a perennial. You'll find that at the end of the year. Sand cherry, uh, plum, pomegranate, kiwi, lemon, lime. Is there anything listed I shouldn't fully our feed? By the way, we live on one-tenth of an acre suburban lot. also have 17 ducks and sell excess eggs. Thanks for all you do. Keep up the good fight, Mike. Well, 
don't know, maybe Grand, Cher Grand Cherry is perennial where you live since you're growing uh, lemon and lime. You might be in like zone 9A or something like that, so maybe I'm wrong about that. But I thought Ground Cherry was an annual. I'm pretty sure that it is. Uh, maybe it's self-reseeding and replicating in, uh, in, in those climates. I don't know. I'd like to know that, man. I'm going to answer your question, Mike. You let me know if you've grown ground cherry consecutively for multiple years without replanting it and how that all works, because I'd like to know about that. Okay, so here's your answer. The answer is no. There are no plants that you specifically should not foliar feed other than probably cactuses and succulents that don't like to be wet. Uh, and those would probably still be just fine if you follow the rest of the rules that I'll give you. Number one, it is best to do your foliar feeding when temperatures are below 80 degrees because a little pores on plants that they uh, take the nutrient through their leaves and stems and into their bodies with uh, tend to close up above 80 degrees, sort of. And I'll hold on to sort of for a minute. The next thing is you don't want to spray them when they're being beaten by the sun because, well, we don't want plants sprayed with water when they're being beaten by the sun in, in the first place because it can act like little magnifying glasses, like these little droplet, and actually burn the plants up. That's one of the problems with that. Uh, but it's also going to, like, dry it off really, really fast and then kind of form like a cake that the plant can't really absorb it. We also don't want to spray when it's really, really windy, especially windy and hot. So still cool weather. When's the best time to do it? In the morning and the evening. I prefer the evening, and I'll explain why. The plant is probably, in most climates, going to get wet overnight anyway from something we call dew. So we're part of the, nat the plant's natural process when we do that. And many plants uh, are able to take not just nutrient, but if you can take nutrient through your leaves, you can take moisture through your leaves. So they'll actually take the opportunity when dew settles on them to take in some of the moisture from the dew, not just from the roots of the dew that makes it to the ground. So they're kind of in that mode anyway. And the next reason is if I spray them in the morning, you know, how long do I have before the sun comes up and it gets hot and the wind picks up and things like that? Uh, most of the time, storms, uh, you know, not counting, most in most of the country, evenings are still weather. I remember as a young kid fishing, and you'd go out and fish, and if you went early, you got done with your chores early, and you got to the lake, uh, it was windy and windy and windy and windy, and like an hour before dark, man, that wind would just really die down. So about an hour before dark, most of the time you're going to get that calm lack of wind anyway. And then you foliar feed your plant, and that gets to be on the plant and be absorbed and be taken up all through the night. And also, even in climates like mine, where, well, good luck seeing 80 degrees between, like, oh, I don't know, July 15th and September 15th at all, it's still cooler, and those plants are still capable of doing that in that rest period. One of the big things is when they're taking on sunlight, if they're taking on more uh, than they can handle, they go into something called transpiration. That's where a plant sweats, basically. In other words, it's being hit so much with so much solar radiation that everything you can do with photosynthesis is done, and all the excess actually is now hurting instead of helping the plant. And at that point, just like you, to deal with an excess of heat, the plant starts sucking up moisture as fast as it can and, and, and transpiring it out. Well, if a plant is transpiring moisture out, what chance does your foliar feed have of getting in? So we need it in that kind of rest stage. Now, there's a, you know, the other thing is, can you overdo it? Well, probably. If you over soak a plant and you do it all the time, you know, I like to do my foliar feeding about once every two weeks. If the plants look really healthy and they're really banging and they really don't look like they need it, I don't do, I'll skip. I'll do it every month. 
Okay, But one of the things I'm also doing usually, I don't always do this, but usually when I do my foliar feed, I'm including garlic and pepper tea, which is basically you take a couple habanero peppers and you throw them in a blender, and you take a whole, you know, a whole head of garlic and you throw it in a blender, and you fill it up with about four cups and you water, and you blend the ever-loving hell out of it, and you let it sit overnight, and then you strain it the next day. Mind not to get it on your fingers and your eyes. And then you use that at a rate of about a cup to a gallon when you're doing your foliar spraying. And it creates a pest preventative as well. So to me, if I'm going to do that, well, why not go ahead and take the opportunity to throw some liquid kelp in there and some garret juice at the same time and do a foliar feed? And what happens is the pepper has kind of a direct effect for, for, for dealing with pests. But the garlic becomes systemic. It gets taken into the plant. And if you notice, you don't see a lot of insect pests chewing on your garlic. You just don't see it. They don't like it. Well, it's subtle, but there's a garlic flavor that goes into the leaves of those plants, and they don't like it. So I kind of combine them together. So I'm not that likely to skip unless the plant is just Banging. If it, I mean, if it just looks vibrant, if it looks like it couldn't be any better, then let it keep doing whatever it's doing. Let's not mess with that. I might skip over those plants that look that way. And the next time I come through, I'll look at them. And if they're still that way, I'll probably spray them that time. But, you know, there's really nothing that you're going to hurt with foliar spray if you follow the directions and don't use too much. And if you don't do it, again, in hot weather when the sun's out, or windy weather. The windy's not so much going to hurt it, but it actually can, because if you think about a plant, when it's dry and windy, and you wet it down, it's heavier, and then the wind beating on it actually makes things worse. But the big thing is it's going to evaporate everything off it. It's not going to be able to take anything up. So mornings is your second choice. Evenings is your first choice. About an hour before dark. Not an hour before sundown, because, you know, sun goes down, it's still kind of light out, like... About an hour before, when it's, when it's cool, you know, that, 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 the heat has broken for the day as much as it's going to break in your area, and there's no real direct sunlight on the plants anymore. Go out and get your spraying done then. That's, that's the ins and outs of foliar spray. Uh, next, I have a follow-up on my comments on um, heartworm medication, which I won't rehash now. But basically, somebody wrote in and said, hey, can you use basically medication that people use for worming like cattle and pigs as a heartworm medication for your dogs because it costs so much less. And I kind of teed off on the fact that, you know, it pisses me off that my vet every year tries to have us have the dogs retested for heartworms um, before they'll do the prescription. And it also t pisses me off that they're like, why won't you buy your heartworm medication from us and all you want from us is a prescription? Well, because I bring six animals to you and because uh, you, you charge twice what I can buy the same medication for online. Twice. Not five bucks, twice. So you get enough of my money. Anyway, I said that I think the over-testing is a, kind of a scam. I think there's something to this that had been recommended to me by Nick Ferguson in the past, and I just hadn't done it yet. Here's what I want to read to you. This comes from uh, Lee, and this is what he says. Lee says, as you know, I'm a doctor with extensive involvement in wilderness medicine. I've also given my dog heartworm prevention for 15 years using livestock dewormer medicine. The drug to get is ivermectin. 
It is exactly the same drug as in HeartGuard, etc. There are a number of advantages to this. First cost. As you can see, a little three $38 bottle will provide your pack with coverage for the rest of their lives. It doesn't go bad in the refrigerator, arbitrary expiration date notwithstanding, but I usually splash out and buy another bottle every few years. And he gives me a link to where you can get it. Okay. Second, no prescription is necessary to purchase this. It can be bought over the counter at many feeds and seeds. Three, it is a liquid, so it can be drawn up in a syringe and then dripped onto your dog's food bowl or on a treat, etc. You don't have to persuade the dog to swallow a pill. There are, more, are, there are, of course, a few caveats. Number one, make certain that you give the dog the correct dose. If you look at your dog's heart guard package, you can learn how many milligrams are in each dose. Then using proportions, figure out how much liquid you need each month. It's more convenient to use the 0.27% solution that is intended for young pigs than to use the 1% solution that is intended for cattle and hogs because a dog simply doesn't need much and the volumes are more convenient. That is, you don't have to measure out 0.1 milliliter using an insulin syringe. Number two, keep the drug in the refrigerator. It will last much longer. Three, make certain the only drug is ivermectin, not a combination of ivermectin and additional drugs or animals or people could die. Here's a cautionary tale for informational purposes only. Ivermectin is not only used to kill heartworms, but a wide variety of other parasites in both animals and people. But a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. I know of a farm family who noted that a few of the kids had picked up intestinal worms. Rather than paying $15 plus for each member of the family to get ivermectin from the pharmacy, the father went out to the barn, got horse deworming medicine that said ivermectin on it, and measured out the dose for every member of the family from itself down to the two-year-old. Unfortunately, a couple of them almost died, not from ivermectin, but from the anti-cholergenic agent, think nerve agent, that was also in the horse preparation in order to eradicate some of the really nasty parasites they are prone to. So read the label, then read it again, then double-check your math. Then go right ahead. As Davy Crockett said, first make certain you're right, then go ahead. Spreading ivermectin far and wide in pastures via animal dung is a major cause of decreased biological diversity of insects and healthy worms. That is why you almost never see dung beetles where people have livestock these days. So use this with discretion for your animals, but don't go overboard. Take care, Lee. Okay, well, there you have it. Now, it's not from a veterinarian, but I think in this case, I trust an MD as much as I trust a vet. I don't know that I'll go to this method because it does induce the possibility of jack-based error. And I love my animals so much. It, 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 it pains me to think that something I would do wrong might hurt them. But the truth is there, there is really no difference, and it's only a matter of making sure you buy the right medication and do the math the right way. That's all it comes down to. And I'm going to say this again. I think you vets out there, and I know there's a lot, I don't mean veterans, I mean vets as in veterinarians out there, and I know there's quite a few of you that listen, that are, that are requiring that every year or every two years that an animal that has never come off heartworm medication be retested for heartworms before issuing another prescription are taking advantage of your customers and they should find a new vet. And if there was a better veterinary office around here, I would have already done it. But the truth is, despite that one thing, the reason I've tolerated these people this long is because they are a fantastic office. They get our animals in quick, and they do a great job with them. 
And I really, really need to do is take some time to, uh, there's the one guy that I've met a couple times that I was like the head, there's like eight, eight veterinary, uh, uh, practitioners in this thing. Not techs, I mean doctors. It's a, it's a pretty big facility, which is why they're so able to handle so much for everybody. Um, but I need to, I need to have a sit down for 15 minutes with him and explain to him, I spend thousands of dollars a year with you people and you're going to stop abusing me. And I think you're abusing other people as a cash cow. You really need to stop pushing this narrative because it's bullshit. You can't tell me that my dog is on this medication right now and it's dangerous for him to take another dose next month. You can't tell me that with a straight face. So I'm going to let that one be closed. If you're a vet and you have anything to add to this, be, I'd love to hear from you, unless you're going to bullshit me about the need to retest. Because uh, I've had that confirmed by a lot of people at this point, that uh, it's not necessary. Next one says, Jack, when is a good time, given today's prices of getting Bitcoin and silver? <laughs> <laughs> I am not a financial advisor, but I'll read on. Details, I have the opportunity to diversify some of my funds into Bitcoin, silver, E-Trade, uh, E-Trade, and my IRA. I have pretty much wiped out almost all my debt except home and car. I'd like to start getting out of standard financial systems to some degree. Bitcoin, gold, and silver, easy decisions. The question is I have, should I just jump in? The prices are only going to go up and or are key things to look for. I have been digesting uh, the Well Studying Podcast too, and really be, will really be using John Pugliano's advice to handle my personal E-Trade account. P.S. I'm making sure to have at least six months of basic expenses on hand and some money in PayPal as well as in cash, and with your advice, some silver on hand. You've been a greater financial educator than everyone else in my life. All added up. Thanks. Well, Robert, thank you for the compliment, but I still can't say, you know what, just wait until next week, and then silver's going to dip, and then buy a bunch of it then. Or just wait two months, and then Bitcoin's going to dip, and then buy. Or just, you know, Bitcoin is going to be nothing but, but gold stars and rainbow farts and unicorns. Buy as much as you can. As fast. I, I can't say any of those things. Unlike most financial advisors, I am not a financial liar. So I, I, I have to be honest, I don't know. Here's how I view those two things independently. Bitcoin is high enough that I can see it retracting some before it begins to move up again. However, my technical analysis is that the floor where it can't come down below, like it'll hit that and that's a supporting point where people will start buying it heavily and push it back up, it could be no less than a 10% retraction. Now, again, I could be wrong, especially in the short term. I just don't know. However, my view of Bitcoin over the long haul is it will continue to go up in value because of math. Because math says so. Because it's a finite resource. And every time one new person decides to get into the world of Bitcoin and start using it, it gets to a point where there's more people that want it than there you know was yesterday but there's le there's less to divide up there's so little bitcoin being mined right now most of it's being exchanged was mined years ago and it's only going to dwindle you really can barely make a profit mining right now bitcoin barely with the most advanced shit there is Where everybody's making a little bit of money with Bitcoin right now is all in the verifying of transactions. So unless Bitcoin has some sort of catastrophic failure, unless everybody leaves and goes over to Dash or Ethereum or something like that, Bitcoin, over the long haul, will continue to appreciate in value. Now, I think if you're holding Bitcoin, it makes sense to pay attention to what's going on 
and realize that there may come a point where some other crypto becomes the de facto standard, becomes the one that everybody wants to have. And if there's a large volume of people selling off Bitcoin at that point, it could retract significantly. I don't see that happening in the next 10 days. I don't see it happening in the next 10 weeks. But it could. So you have to stay informed with it. And I personally feel that, you know, I, I kind of feel about cryptocurrencies uh, about half the way I feel about gold and silver. I've always said 5% to 10% of your wealth in gold and silver If it's really high, don't throw it all in at once and hold on to it. You know, figure out kind of your own timeline, buying out pieces, parts, looking for opportunities on the downtrend to pick it up. So I'd say two to five percent in cryptocurrencies. It's a new global commodity is what it is. But let's not risk the kids college fund in it. If I'm running a business, I'm not going to have my business cash flow in Bitcoin. It's too volatile. Um, because if it drops five points tomorrow, and I'm holding $10,000 worth of it. I don't really give a shit. I don't care. But if that's the cash flow that I'm going to be using to pay the business's bills, well, I, I kind of care the short-term fluctuations. So I see it more of a long-term play and hold. Now, here's the other thing. More and more people are getting into this, and they're buying a couple thousand dollars worth, and they're just saying, this is a better deal than I get from the bank, and they're not spending it. This is a, a problem, air quotes around it, for any deflationary currency. When people grab onto it, they don't want to let go of it. They don't want to spend it. So what does that tell you? Well, that tells you that you get to a point where there's even more competition for the mined Bitcoin that's available. So I think it's a good long-term investment. But how much did you buy and when? Dude, you got to figure that out for yourself. Silver, ditto to a large degree. Next up, silver. Okay, I love silver. Uh, I've continued to add silver to my portfolio over the past six years, but for the past six years, silver has been on a decidedly downward trend, which means it's been getting cheaper, so it's been getting more attractive to pick a little bit more up here and there. I also take silver into the business uh, as a form of payment, which makes it uh, a really nice piece that comes in kind of as its little own basket for my eventual retirement. So that, that works out as well. However, um, I think that the overall downward trend in silver is going to continue for a while. Uh, I would say the same thing about gold right now. Again, this is based on a technical analysis. Uh, because the things that have been causing silver and gold to wane in value over the past five, six years have not uh, substantially changed. And to put things in perspective, silver is trading in value right now for about what it was trading for in 2009. Meaning if you bought silver somewhere around 2009, you probably have about the same amount of value in it today. If you bought it in 2012, you've probably lost somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% of the value of your silver. Okay. Um, what has caused that trend? When people have high economic confidence, overall they feel that the economy is doing well, that they're going to be able to pay their bills, and even the people that are worried about paying their bills feel like they'll be better off next year than they are this year. Precious metals tend to decline in value. When people are concerned about the economic future, when people have a poor economic outlook, Money moves into these commodities as a store of value, and it's also because institutional investors know that game is an old game and that there's going to be an extreme upswing 
uh, during a depression. So they pre-position their assets into these things prior to a downturn, knowing that they're the ones that are probably going to help create the downturn, looking at their own books and going, gee, we know a downturn's coming, we're not going to tell them yet. And among the other places they position their money in short positions and in hedge funds, they also position them into the metal markets. This usually causes a little uptick in the commodity, and if you look back historically, Uh, of stock market crashes, there's been a little uptick in metal prices, then there's a market crash and recession, and then the metal takes off, and then as the economy recovers, the metal declines. Why? Because all the institutional investors that trade their metal and paper are not stupid, and when they can make 30% on their money in a month, they take their 30% profit and they pull back out. Of course, that's when all of the Uh, little guys are climbing in and they're putting up signs, we buy silver in gas stations and stuff like that. And that puts some stability into that over time. So your institutional investors play with that a while. They take a big chunk in profits. They use, uh, they use options to play with it on a sideways skid. And then they short it right before it drops. So where are we? We're at the, the drop of a drop of a drop. I mean, again, you, you, silver went down from 2012 to 2013, from 2013 to 2014, from 2014 to 2015, and from 2015 to 2016. It rebounded in 2016 and then began to decline again and is now kind of hitting a floor somewhere around 15 bucks. And if I was going to make a significant purchase, that's kind of the number I would be looking for. It's about 15 bucks. Why? Because ep economic optimism pushes down the value of silver and gold. And everybody's economically optimistic about the Trump effect still. Even though the media is telling you it's not real, the, the markets are optimistic, everything's optimistic. You know, things could flatten out a little bit, like if they have trouble getting tax reform through. We already saw a little bit of that effect when they couldn't get health care reform through the first time. But in the end, people are still optimistic. Things are pretty good. People have gotten new jobs. They lost jobs before. Maybe they're not as good, but they feel like that job is safe. So until you see that, then you're not going to see you're not going to see silver really go on a ride again, uh, up or down, until one of those things change. However, I would say this: if over the next couple months silver doesn't break through $15 on the down, I think you have a solid floor because. Things are about as rosy as they're going to look for a long time, in my view. Now, again, you have to make your own financial decisions. I'm not saying when to buy, what to buy. I'm just saying that if silver can hold its own in that you know, $17 to $15 range and not break through $15 bucks in the next three months, I'm will, two to three months, I'm willing to call that a floor for silver. Unless some major economic boom happens, and it'll continue to come down. But if anything goes off the rails, it'll start to trickle back up. So what, what does that mean for the person saying, I'm, I, I just, should I buy silver or not? Maybe you should buy a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here and a little bit there and talk to people you know that have silver. And maybe you can do some work for them and they can pay you half of your money in silver instead of cash. Things like that. These are much safer ways to ease into this. And, and, and start to pay attention to. See, this is the thing. People want you to tell them when to buy. They haven't paid attention to what's been going on. You need to watch, when you want to start playing with a commodity, you need to watch it. And when it goes up, you need to look up, well, what made it go up? And was there any indicator that this was going to happen before it did? And then watch it, when it goes down, did, what, 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 why did it go down? What, you, there's no shortcut to this stuff. And you certainly can't call me an oracle that's going to tell you when to buy, what to buy. Through diversification, I maintain stability. 
true diversification, okay? Business income, tax structuring, lifestyle design, commodities, investments, all spread out across multiple pools. If it's, if it goes deep into any one thing, like I'm going to jump all in on silver and all that, no. Now I know the guy that wrote in, you're saying, you know, I got this money put aside. I got six months of it. That's all great. All my debts paid off except the home and the car. Dude, look at paying your car off, man. You know? Unless it's like you've got a really good term on that where it just makes like I'd rather have the debt than the – because there there's a case to be made for that. The lease on my forerunner is exactly that. I There's no way I'm going to put $40,000 into a vehicle that I can drive for three years for $11,000. I'm not going to do it. It's, it's just dumb. Right? It's just dumb. So if that's the case, then, then yeah, go with this, but take some time and learn more about these investments you want to make. If you don't understand the investment and the reason for spending the money, don't. Because I could tell you, go buy it, and it could go up through the roof, and you could be happy with me, or it could go down through the floor, and you'd be pissed off with me. I'm not going to do either one of those things. Self-education and protect your hard-earned money. Always have exit strategies, have points that you know you're getting out, and put insurances in place to make sure that you're okay no matter what. Uh, let's take another one. Okay, this next one's kind of a bit of an interesting one. This guy also emailed me and said, um, I want to advertise uh, on your site. and I didn't respond to that. He might not even know he's getting this show mentioned because I didn't tell him. Uh, but this is kind of like a one-off thing. And I, I, I don't do advertising for one-off things. I do advertising for things like, you know, the sponsors that we've had for five years or more that are going to be around for a long time. Um, this is a one-off. But it's an interesting one-off, and it might be something that somebody is looking for. This comes to me from Gary of Harmony Seafood. Says, hey Jack, I love the podcast. Couple things in common. I grew up in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, uh, deer hunted in Bucks County. Two years of uh, horticulture in Votech High School there. Moved to Juneau, Alaska in 10 years as a CA TV installer, tech lineman in construction. Guys, you don't know how much there's in common there. I worked the CA TV and constructed cabling business for a long time. Uh, 15 years as a harbor master assistant. We have now diverged. I've never been a harbor master. Uh, sold the house and everything to bug out early and moved to Prince of Wales area in southeast Alaska, and I have two oyster farm sites. I can only handle one of them, so I'm selling the other. State-approved oyster grow-out area, clam beaches, two upland cabins, $20,000. Good remote income potential, though I would offer it to someone that you, uh, though I would offer it to someone that you may know personally that may be interested as I would prefer a prepper-minded person as my closest neighbor, about five water miles, before advertising to the general public. I am the only human on the island where I live. I have a large solar array currently installing a micro-hydro generator in the creek. That's a Pennsylvania word, guys, for creek. C-R-I-C-K, creek. I have a large chicken coop and two greenhouses, hunt deer, ducks, and geese. I, I leave the many black bears at peace, catch all five species of salmon, as well as steelhead, trout, cod, shrimp, crabs, and many 150-pound-plus halibut. And, of course, oysters and clams. Natural protein source is no problem here. Telling you this in case you're looking for show material, please mail me back with ideas or how I might advertise the oyster farm on your podcast. Thanks, Gary Harmony Seafood. So, look, here's what I'm going to say. <coughs> I'm going to hold on to Gary's email address. Uh, I'll keep it in my folder. 
If you're interested in talking to Gary about acquiring this second oyster farm and knowing more about this, um, email me and I'll, I'll, I'll connect the two of you. I'm not going to put his email address out publicly. I'm not going to charge him to kind of point that out. And Gary, I'll say this if you're listening today. Uh, the, selling the one aside, I think your lifestyle would be a hell of an interesting thing to talk about. And if you'd like to be on the show... Go ahead and fill out the guest form, and we'll get you on the show. I think Dorothy said yesterday we're booking into June right now. So anybody that's out there thinking, I should get on TSP soon. As soon as if you've put in a guest form right now, we accept it. You're getting your ass on around late June to early July. Okay, so quit dilly-dallying and fill out the form. Uh, and once we get into July, I'm going to shut it down for a couple months because we don't like to be booked out too far in the front. But, Gary, we'd love to have you on the show Um I don't know if this is going to sell your oyster farm for you, but uh, it sounds interesting. It, it definitely does. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, take another one. Okay, next one comes from Jaron at the Urban Aviary. He says, hey, Jack, I have a gun question for you. I need your input on caliber selection for deer and elk rifle. I listened to one of your previous shows on underrated rifle calibers, and I'm trying to find a gun round that is capable of the magic formula. Uh, the 175 grain and 280 requires reloading. Otherwise, that would be my choice. Okay. Uh, however, I don't have time or money to invest in reloading right now. I would like something I can buy ammunition off the shelf with to get close to the .90 ballistic coefficient. It's actually, okay, .89, but who's going to split hairs there? I've considered the 260 and 140. I believe the grain you recommended for that round, but would other calibers such as the 270 or 7mm 08 have an option for a round to be purchased off the shelf with the magic formula. I don't have my heart set on any one gun or caliber, just looking for what will most readily be available to me. I'm hoping to pick up a decent rifle with a scope and a gun show in upcoming months to use for the hunt this year. Keep up the good work, Jaron at the Urban Aviary. Okay, Jaron, let's see. If we're talking about deer, I'd say pick whatever you want and don't worry about it. Use good quality ammunition and bang, and the deer dies. Um, when we move into the world of elk, I have seen elk with like an entire lung disintegrated, a quarter of the other lung disintegrated, and I've seen them stand up and walk away. And they die, but they, I mean, what I've seen elk absorb is pretty freaking incredible. The magic formula that he's talking about, folks, is if we get a ballistic, uh, or sorry, a sectional density of uh, .89 or higher is kind of the, math that I've worked out where it really kind of zeroes in. And we have a muzzle velocity uh, between about 20, 24 to 2600 feet per second. Moderate compared to what most people are looking to do today. We get this, this kind of effect where that heavy four caliber bullet with that long sectional density. Sectional density sounds like a complicated word. It just means the ability of an object to penetrate. The more dart-like Right, the more higher the sectional density. If you wanted something with terrible sectional density, you would have a cube. A cube would have terrible sectional density. The same weight sphere would have a higher sectional density. And if we took the sphere and we elongated it out into a dart-like structure and we sent all three of those at the same speed through the air, the cube would penetrate the least, the sphere would be in the middle, and the dart would be at the end. So the more dart-like relative to caliber and weight the higher the sectional density. Those rounds at those speeds expand moderately. They don't expand explosively. 
They carry through the target and they deliver a tremendous amount of energy as they drag themselves through the target. And they tend to, even in very dense targets, exit. And that is important because when we put a hole in both sides of an animal, blood immediately begins to pour out. Where sometimes when we have no exit wound, an animal that's dead on its feet and doesn't know it yet, it's going to go 50 to 100 yards, it might be hard to find because it might not bleed as much. Because it might not. The deer I shot this year, shot it with a 357 Magnum at about 107 yards, textbook busted the shoulder through the lungs, but didn't exit. Deer was probably 60 feet from where I shot it. Thick, dense woods, pitch dark by the time, you know, people came out to try to help me find it because I shot it like I had two minutes of light left that I could even see to, to confidently take the shot at the most. So by the time I got down from the stand, walked out to where it was, it was really dark. And we, I'm like, I know it's right there. And we're looking around. We brought lights up, turned them on. And fortunately, we could get, you know, uh, you know, four-wheelers back in there. We have light bars that lit up the whole thing. So still can't see the damn thing. Get down on the ground, point the flashlight exactly where I thought it would be. There's white belly. It's laying there dead. So now I'm tracking it all the way to where it is. This is a 110-pound doe maybe, right? Not a big-ass elk. Track it every, like know where it stepped. Can't see a drop of blood. Get there, whole dead center, perfect shot. Could have, I could have walked up, put the barrel up against it, shot it, it would have hit the same spot. That's how perfect it was. And pick the deer up by its leg and turn it over and blood just dumps out of it. It's almost like a vacuum thing where it doesn't bleed out sometimes. So we'd like an exit hole. This usually gets us an exit hole. However, when we move into the world of elk, we're stepping up. All right. Now, what I'll say is of the rounds you mentioned, the 7mm 08 is one of the key rounds for that magic formula. And you're probably looking at going with a 165 grain bullet out of the 7mm 08, and you probably will have no problem taking elk with it, and it's dynamite on deer. And it's a good long-range caliber. That said, that said, I'm more of a fan of stepping up into really... Premium ammunition with a 306 on elk. And if, if you wanted off the shelf ammo with a, you know, 30 year track record of killing big animals in the 306, it would be federal premium 180 grain Nosler partitions. Uh, they are, you know, elk death waiting to happen. And on the bigger elk in the longer shots, you're still not optimum elk round, okay? The 306 has taken most big game in the world, let alone in North America, and it's more than capable of it. But if you wanted my honest opinion and you wanted to follow this formula, the two rounds I would suggest you look at, though they'll be expensive and off the shelf and they'll be harder to find, would be the 338.06 or the the uh, the 35 Whalen. And both of those were pretty much made for elk. The 338.06 was made by, uh, I can't think of his name now, uh, Elmer Keith. It was the 333 before the 338 ammo came out, before the 338 Winchester. And it was a 333 O'Keefe or something like that. And then as soon as the, the point three, uh, 338 uh, 
uh, rounds came out, and they were better quality bullets, and there were a lot more availability. The Wildcat switched to the 338, and then it, it 06, and it became standardized. It's a 33806 Ackley Improved or something like that, I think is what they standardized for Sammy on. The 35 Whalen was made by Colonel Townsend Whalen, and it was, you know, to step that 306, because they're both just 306 necked up, the 338 and the 35 respectively. They were both with the idea of let's take the 306 and let's make it suitable for these larger animals like elk. And they are probably the two most underrated and best elk cartridges on the planet. And they fall right into that formula, but they do it with a bigger, heavier bullet. If you just said, Jack, I, 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 I can't deal with all this crap, I just need something, 3006, or if you wanted insurance, there's a lot of affordable guns out there in 338 Winchester Magnum, if you can shoot it without feeling like you're getting a shit beat out of you. Now, the, so the other side of that, you zero it with a lead sled, okay, you get confidence in it, you don't care that it kicks with a lead sled, when you're, when you're shooting an elk, you're not going to notice the recoil. So don't be afraid of a gun like that. But... Of everything, for the off-the-shelf stuff without going into Magnums, 3006. 3006 is affordable. Ammo's available anywhere. Lots of options. Uh, Federal has some premium rounds with the trophy bonnet bear claw. That's another great bullet to use for elk size game. For deer, it doesn't matter. From 243 to freaking 460 Weatherby, if you can't kill a deer with any of those, as long as you have the right bullet selection, it's your problem, not the rifle's problem. It, it really is. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. This next one says, TSP, Jack is still right. Death of retail. Stores are closing at a record pace as Amazon chews up retailers from Bloomberg. And there's a link to the article, and I have it in the show notes, but there's also a, a video piece that I've made an audio copy of for you guys. I'm going to play that now, and I'll come back with my thoughts. Retail is a mess, <laughs> to say the least. Um, from a 10,000-foot view, this trend... These retailers have had declining top line for a number of years now, and this is not a cyclical issue. Right? The economy's been good. Right? Consumer sentiment's good. Uh, unemployment's coming down. Oil prices are low. This is a secular issue. This is a forever trend. Right? If you think about how things are going to look 10 years from now or 20 years from now, our parents will be dead. Our kids will be adults. Do you think more people are going to be shopping online or less? Right? This is the Amazon effect, and it's here forever. So from an opportunity set, to get long these credits, they're trading through the, in the distressed debt world at around six times cash flow. And that's the multiple of a stable to growing business, not a declining business. So we're not long any of this. They're overvalued, in other words. Yeah, these should trade at three or four times. Now, when you say they, we're talking about the ones that lots of people should be familiar with, the Neiman Marcuses. The Macy's, the Sears, the list goes on among the larger distressed credits. Yeah, so that, that's, that's part of the problem. Most of these retailers are actually smaller. So you listed the large ones, but there's about 50 companies that could file for bankruptcy this year. Companies 50 like, retailers that yeah. could file for bankruptcy this year. Yeah. So American Apparel is already gone. That's filed twice. It's liquidating. Think about companies like Rue 21, Claire's. These are... You know, reasonable size companies, but they're not the even Marxists of the world. So if you want to talk about trades, the trade is to be short the sector. But it's actually very hard to short these credits. Why? You can't short term loans. And bonds trading at 50 cents can be cost prohibitive to short. Because if you're borrowing the bond to short it, you have to pay the coupon. And you have to pay the prime broker to borrow the bonds. 
even if you could get comfortable that with that expensive cost to carry, it's a good risk reward, you can't really borrow enough. Even for a firm our size, and we manage about a billion six, to take a meaningful short exposure on a small credit like Rue 21, where the bonds trade at five cents on the dollar, it's just, it's just almost impossible. So the only way to short the sector is through the larger liquid names that you just described uh, or through the securitization market. So we were short Neiman Marcus because they have an active default swap market. These smaller credits don't have default swap markets. There's no single name CDS market for not for like Route 21, 21 right? Jimboree, exactly, Jimboree. So, so Neiman Marcus has about three billion dollars of term loan. That's actually the reference security for part of the default swap market. So you could short the term loan by buying insurance through the CDS market. So, we we shorted that credit in bond terms at around 115, and it's trading at 80 today. Um, we're, we're out of the trade. What about the mall trade? So that's sort of the second derivative, and I think the most interesting element of, of the short retail thesis. If you talk to retailers a year ago, they sort of all had the same message. They said, all of our stores are profitable. This isn't a footprint problem. It's a merchandising problem. We made some bad decisions. We got the merchandise wrong. And we were a little bit late to the e-commerce game. We're building our e-commerce site. If you talk to them today, they're all saying we need to shrink our footprint. I mean, it's amazing. It's only, it's, it's, I would describe it as a paradigm shift. Even JCPenney in the fourth quarter was saying we're perfectly comfortable with our footprint. Then they came out in January and said we're shutting 135 stores down. And we think, we think that's just the beginning. We think they'll shut at least another 100 down. So the way to express that view is, again, through the CDS market? Well, if you think about what happens when every single retailer is looking at their footprint for the first time ever, simultaneously, okay, they have to pick which stores they're going to shut down. And they're all looking at the same data. They're all looking at the same mall traffic data. So if you have a tier C mall here, and 10 miles down the street you have a tier A mall, right? they're, they're, they're going through an exercise now for the first time in the industry where they're talking about sales recapture. If we shut this mall down, this store down in this mall, how much of the sales will we recapture in, in, in tier A mall? So if you think about what that does to tier C and tier D malls, it crushes them. It's a vicious cycle. when. You know, you have a mall that's anchored by Macy's, JCPenney, and Sears, and they all simultaneously shut down. Okay, now that last part is something that we've talked about before. What happens to a mall when the anchor stores or an anchor store pulls out? I have an email here from Martin that I've been hanging on to, waiting for the perfect time to use it, and now is the perfect time to use it. He uh, he sent this to me back on uh, March 27th, so not that long ago, a couple weeks I've been hanging on to this one. It says, Hi Jack, this is a comment regarding your response about retail st- stores in episode 1970. The closest medium city to me is Bullhead City, where we had a mall where both JCPenney and Sears are closing. I was looking at renting a space in this mall for my small business. And from January, my quote was $1,900 a month. Now that the stores are leaving, I can get in for $875. They also mentioned they've already had early terminations and expect a 75% vacancy in two months. They can't stay alive like that. Best wishes and sorry for your loss. Keep on keeping on, Martin. Well, Martin, thanks for your kind words about our loss, and we're doing the best we can to move past that. Um, But your point is very germane to the situation here. Because even if there's a whole bunch of Martins that are willing to rent all the little spaces in this mall for $800 to $900 a month, what do you do with the anchors? Because they're the big, giant, open spaces like 
Do you remodel them into a bunch of small stuff? How do you possibly put this back together? So, you see, the guy like Martin's in it now, like going, well, shit, I don't even want to rent this place for $875, even though it's less than half of what I would have had to pay a month ago because, well, I'm going to move my business in there, and then the whole thing's going to shut down anyway. So this whole mall that Martin's talking about is done. Even at the small, like the smaller chain retailers that maybe are doing okay, and and don't need to shut down tons of stores, they're going to go. Well, I there's no reason for us to maintain this location. Without the foot traffic, we don't have the sales, and none of them are doing that good anyway. You heard what the guy said: as many as 50 small, smaller than like the Neiman Marcus Sears may declare bankruptcy this year. I think that number's low. I think that number's low. I think this is a much... See, this is the thing. Mainstream is just beginning to talk about this pro problem. You heard me and John Pugliano talking about this problem as much as three years ago. When everybody's like, ah, there's always going to be... So malls have been going out of business and coming new malls for, for 30, 40 years. It's been going on. It's an old story. And, and, you know, the people that were saying that weren't wrong, they just weren't right this time. Because, I, I mean, I watched malls over the last 20 years right here in Dallas. I moved to town. It was one of the, you know, there's a big, beautiful mall there. And then it's like, it becomes like a lower-tiered mall with lower, and then they put a, a, a nightclub into one mall over in Grand Prairie, and I think it caught on fire, burned a place down, and it bailed out the owner because he got fire insurance on it, right? And there's another mall I can think of not far from there. The same thing happened to There's a mall that used to be that we used to go to when I was drugged to it against my will, uh, right off of Cooper Street in Arlington, and it's still there and it's still a big mall. But you know they opened up more of like a, a park like they call it the Highlands where you, like, all the stores are outside and and it just really just drug with a life left out of it. And that was that's a tier one mall and it, it's almost put it down like like a, like a like a like a sick cow or something you know. Um, This just is going to continue, and I'll say this again. The retailers that will stay in business are going to be boutique or unique or specialized knowledge. And I'll give you a couple different examples. I don't know this for a fact, but every once in a while my wife wants to spoil herself, and I'm fine with it because I never have to go because she doesn't want me there. She goes to this store called Ulta, and she buys cosmetics and stuff like that, right? I bet you whenever she's in there, there's still tons of people in there even in the middle of the day because they're a high-end cosmetics. Like they have all, it, 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 It's different than the, the cosmetics section of a Macy's, right? And, and, and they're selling to women, and they, they got this thing nailed down, and they got their marketing nailed down. And I think, you know, will there be ultras that close? Sure. Will they evolve? Probably. And I'm not saying they have to go by stocking them or their parent company or anything. I'm just saying that's one example of the type of, uh, of, of retail establishment that even if it doesn't make it long-term, has more longevity in it than a Macy's. Okay? Another is the place that parents will take their kids for entertainment and end up spending money. So the two that I can think of doing it right versus the one competitor they have that's doing it wrong would be Cabela's and Bass Pro Shops versus something like a Gander Mountain. Now, Gander Mountain, albeit is a lot smaller of a store and what have you, and they don't have a boat section and a Polaris section and things like that. But if you go to Bass Pro Shops, like I remember one time I like I took a, like a, a health, what do they call it, a mental health day, 
from, from working. And I thought, you know, it's like a Tuesday at like 10 o'clock. And this is when we still live closer than we do now to the airport. And there's a big Bass Pro Shops up by the airport. I'm like, I'm going to go to Bass Pro Shops and walk around. And I figured it'll be a great time to go. There won't be anybody. The place was jammed. Jammed. I've done that with Cabela's. There's a Cabela's not too far from here. You know, you go by in the middle of the week, in the middle of the day, because I don't have a regular job like regular people. And I and you go in there, the place is jammed, and there's people with their little kids, and they're, they're making a day out of being at Cabela's because the kids look at the animals, and there's waterfalls, and there's fish. and Like, I'm not saying that is the model. I'm saying it is a model if you've got the right clientele and the right product set. And if you think about it, some of the most successful retailers – today really came from the catalog world into the retail space versus the other way around. And the catalog stores, they got into the e-commerce game immediately because it made sense to them. And the retail establishments, they held back on e-commerce for a lot longer because it didn't make sense to them. And I remember back, I talked earlier about uh, cable. So I did CATV, which is the stuff that comes to your house and brings you your TV stuff. Okay, But I also did a lot of data cable stuff. And so I had a lot of clients, like you'd want to get a client like, let's say, a CompUSA for data cabling. Because, and I don't mean their corporate headquarters will do payroll, and I'll sure you'd want that. But if you could get, and I did, I got a contract to do like all their stores from Texas to, to Florida and up to like Virginia was one of the sales that I made. It wasn't a big job for the individual store, but every time they rolled out a store, because there was data cabling going to every cash register, there was manager offices and things like this. And it was it was actually an easy job to do because you had the big high ceilings and stuff like that. So I remember when I'm talking to these people at CompUSA, Aetna Healthcare was another example in a different way. Uh, it rolled out on that model. But with CompUSA, what they had was they had this, this, this beginning of an e-commerce uh, solution. And I talked to them about it, and they were basically, the, the corporate apparatus was putting them to war with each other. They were basically saying they wanted no collusion whatsoever between e-commerce and the retail outlets because they actually expected the e-commerce side to fail. And they didn't want the e-commerce parasitizing their retail, which they thought was their longevity. Okay, well... <laughs> it's an interesting thing. CompUSA doesn't even exist anymore. They were absorbed by Tiger Direct, one of the biggest online retailers of electronics and computers in, on a planet. And then they basically had all of the, the retail locations shut down. I, I'm trying to find CompUSA right now, and here's, here's what I'm reading, right? I, I was able to find this with my Google foo. It says, Welcome to the new and improved CompUSA.com, a division of Systemax Inc. You've been, if you've been a CompUSA customer, you'll immediately notice some dramatic changes that you're going to love. Lower prices, a much wider selection of products and accessories, and faster shipping. You buy it today, it ships today. Plus, we're totally committed to customer service. We're here 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and we won't be satisfied until you're satisfied with every purchase. Well, the biggest dramatic difference that I know is the top of the page says Tiger Direct Business, and this is on some applications campaign like something that ended up on their back server that they didn't delete. All right, so the the catalog online retailer absorbed uh, the offline retailer and dissolved them. And, and that's happened everywhere. And it, it, this is this is the case. Like when a guy was talking about it and saying that like some of these retailers are saying we waited too long to get into the game, we're redoing our e-commerce site. It's too late. You can't do it now. Because the competitors, 
to people like Amazon aren't Sears and, and Macy's, for God's sakes. You know, they're companies like Wayfair and Overstock. Uh, th th these are the companies that are really competing with them. Right now, some of the biggest online retailers are well-known box stores. Uh, Walmart is the number two retailer, uh, online retailer on, on the planet right now, but they have 2.8% uh, of, of their sales, uh, of their total sales. And they are way, way behind Amazon to the tune of about fifty uh, $50 billion dollars. Um, so you know maybe Walmart. See, Walmart's the other kind of retailer that will be around because they 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 appeal to the lowest demographic of consumer. And I don't mean to offend you if you shop at Walmart because sometimes I do, but they but they do, and they have an incredible footprint. And people buy a lot of shit at Walmart that they're not going to buy on Amazon. They buy their groceries at Walmart. The smartest thing Walmart did was go heavy into the grocery side of things. Uh, they make a huge amount of their money off of food stamps. If that offends anybody, I'm sorry. It's just the truth. Uh, Apple is the number three uh, online retailer in the world right now, making about 5.1% of their sales, which is insane to me because have you ever been to a Genius Bar? Oh, my God, what a, what a horrible experience. Um, Staples is number four. Macy's is number five. Home Depot is number six. Let me tell you about places like Home Depot and Lowe's, though. The reason their online sales look so high is because people buying it and having it shipped. It's people like me that when they need a whole bunch of random crap and they don't want to search around a store, we buy it and we either have it delivered or we go pick it up, right? And that's that's a big part of, of, of that type of thing. Best Buy's number seven. QVC's number eight. Costco's number nine. And Nordstrom's number ten. And if you add up 10 through 2, Nordstrom to Walmart, they don't equal Amazon. They don't equal Amazon. As you come down from there, 11 was Target last year. It's like pathetic numbers compared to everybody else. It's going, the people, what people don't understand, like Amazon is it for now. There's some people out there trying to skin how to do it, but they've gotten so good at it. It's going to be very hard to overcome them, but... There are the companies that are similar to Amazon in their model. They, you can get anything from, and, and they're known as an online thing. Like Walmart's not known as an online thing. It's an offline thing that you can order online from. Okay? That, I mean, that's, that's kind of how to see that. Um, of the retailers, I think they're the one that can make it into the e-commerce crossover. And they still have a massive way to go. But I think they're smart enough to understand to not try to separate the two worlds. To let them work together. And that was the big mistake that all of these other companies made. They wanted to bifurcate things. They successfully did it. And that means they, when you do that, you're going to put all your, your real momentum into one side. And they, they kept their momentum and all of their effort and all their focus into the physical retail side. And they treated their e-commerce section like a bastard stepchild. And now it's too late. It's too late to revive that, 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 you know, Sears, Is, is not going to be able to survive as an online retailer. They're not because what, what do they have that you can't get somewhere else for less, I guess is the way to look at it. Because as soon as we're buying online, this is what we're looking for. Reliability, speed of shipment, price, and ease of return. Okay? If, if, if those boxes are ticked, we're going to default to price. So you got to compete today with, with Amazon's shipping speed, which is Stupid fast. Stupid fast on 90% of what you would order on their price, which is competitive everywhere. 
and on brand loyalty, which is, I mean, brand loyalty alone is, is what makes it worth being an affiliate for Amazon because people like doing business with them. Uh, this is just going to continue, and it's only going to get worse. And now proving we are the most variety-based variety, variety -based variety show on the planet, let's talk about something completely different from Brad. Brad says, what are the best practices for maintaining a wild blackberry patch? This might be a dumb question since they're wild and all. But what are some ways one can optimize an existing BlackBerry patch? We have several throughout our property. Some years harvest have been good, others not so much. I just want to know if there's anything I can do to be a good steward of the land and maximize production of a natural resource. Thanks, Brad. Well, what do BlackBerrys want? BlackBerrys want sun, but not too much. They're an edge species. BlackBerrys want lots of moisture, and BlackBerrys want space to grow. Probably the biggest thing that you can do with blackberries, wild blackberries, that no one does, because it's kind of a pain in the ass, is to prune out your second-year canes uh, at the end of the season. So blackberries are a flora cane fruiting species, except for some, there's some what are called primocane uh, fruiting species that are special hybrids and specially developed products that are available, like Primark, Prime Gym are some blackberries that are primocane. Primacane means first cane. So a primacane blackberry that would always be domestic is going to, cane's going to come up. It's going to fruit that year at the end of the season. It's going to go dormant. It's going to come back next year. It's going to fruit again in the second year. And then in the third year, it's going to die. Okay. Wild blackberries are all going to be what are called floricane, which is, which means second cane. So that means that the cane's going to come up in the first year and have green growth and, and provide energy to the plant. And it's going to go dormant. And then next year, that cane will fruit. And at the end of that season, it will die. So all your canes on a blackberry plant, whether it's primacane or floricane, are going to be first year, second year, or dead. Got it? That's, that's just the way it works. That's how brambles work. And the only thing that changes is whether or not it will fruit. It will fruit on both or it will fruit on only the second year cane. So you got stuff that's going to fruit on second year cane. So... The biggest thing you could do to improve your blackberry harvest from wild blackberries is to get your pruners out and identify your second-year canes that fruited this year. And at the end of the season, when they've dropped their leaves and they've done all they can do is prune them off at the ground and get them out of the way and make space for everything that's coming. And then just like you would do with domestic blackberries, tip back your second-year canes a bit so that they grow more bushy instead of like falling over. And that leaves room for your primocanes coming up in the spring to have a place to be. And then you're going to get a much better harvest. It'll be easier to harvest, too, because you won't be sticking your arm through all those third-year hard, rigid canes that are still stuck in there. However, they do tend to act sort of like a trellis. So you got to make sure you're pruning in a way that makes sense. Another thing that you can do is heavily mulch um, that area, just, you know, Usually where they're growing, there's trees around anyway, so shredded leaves and stuff like that to help keep it and irrigate if you if you can, or maybe even if you a lot of times you see you know you have dirt roads or paths or something like that, and you have hard water runoff. If you can do some things to direct some water and put some reservoirs around that, just a rock ring around the area, maybe dig it out just a little bit, fill it in with mulch, and then that hard water runoff kind of settles in there like a little pond. Make sure there's an outflow for it so it doesn't you know create problems back up on your road. And then you're basically making like a little mini swale-based system in there, uh, especially since they fruit generally like from now until early summer when rain's prevalent, that extra water will make a big deal. I've seen this happen naturally. Where we lived in Arkansas, we had a lot of wild blackberries on our mountain. 
and there was a road that we used to hike about a mile and a half hike up to the top of the mountain to our you know third and last neighbor and um, up on the top of that mountain you kind of went really really steep and then it went to a ridge where you had very little incline or decline and it was kind of just a flat spot across it. this is all dirt road of course and there was a patch of it with some deep ruts and that that whole ridge line where it was leveled out and the road was clear both sides you'd have blackberries on But when you got to where the ruts in the road were, were that, that acted like a little mini natural swale that held water, those were your biggest, fruitiest, sweetest blackberries because that extra moisture was there for them. So you just got to think about the plant's needs and kind of provide its needs. And again, pruning out the deadwood and tipping back your second-year canes to about you know chest height and uh, doing that every year, you could manage them the, the exactly the same way that you manage domestic ones, and it'll probably make your yields a bit better. That's the best you can do. There's not much else you can do uh, other than if you have prepared beds where you're really intensively managing and maybe you're wiring and trellising or something like that. You have a fertility regime going on. You have irrigation in there. Digging up crowns and transplanting them, you, you know, that's, that's how the whole thing started in the first place. And those wild berries have a lot of that natural vigor, that resistance to, 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 to pests and things like that. Though blackberries are pretty trouble-free plants to begin with. Let's take another one. This next one is from Dan. Dan says, Hi, Jack. I think I might be the one with the garbled voicemail about worms that you mentioned yesterday's show. Here's what I was trying to ask. I actually don't think it was you, dude, but we'll go ahead and handle this anyway. I think it was mealworms the other guy was talking about anyway. Uh, I have an earth machine composter with a link to it. And I have a link in the show notes so you can see what this guy's talking about. It says, can I switch half my full bin over uh, to worm compost, my half full bin over to worm composting? I was re-listening to the Growing Your Food show and I heard you reference compost, pile, compost piles that never really finish since people are always adding new stuff to them. That sounds like me. I live in Massachusetts and have a bin that's over half full and really has not broken down much. I always stir it with a pitchfork when adding kitchen scraps Would also like to sprinkle, and I would also sprinkle in some leaves. I believe you said that worm composting would be better for someone like me. Note that the bin includes an optional screen at the bottom I could remove if necessary. Any worm composting tips in general so others in my situation might get something out of this. If you prefer that I call it in, I can do that too. Thanks very much, and have a great weekend. Okay, Dan, let me try to help you. Okay, so I looked at your compost bin, and your compost bin, well, it's it's a open-ended garbage can with a lid, basically. It's it's what they all are. They all try to make a big deal out of it, but it's basically a place to keep everything out of sight with a lid to keep critters from getting into it and some good ventilation in it. There's nothing wrong with it, but if you go on the MSB, there's a video that I made of making tough-made rubber-made garbage cans into composters by drilling some holes with a hole saw in them and sticking a piece of ventilated pipe down the middle. And, and there, the, the, what what you have, and I'm not putting it down, it's just it's no better than that. And I just say that for anybody that's looking at all these composters that are just basically plastic squares or, or you know, what have you. Now, there's the ones that are like a barrel that roll. Uh, those actually work pretty good if you follow the instructions, save your material up, and run them in batches. But all the stuff that sits on the ground, I mean, you could take uh, some fencing and make a circle and pile shit in there. And it's it's basically going to do the same thing. A composter like yours can work. Basically what you need to do is get it filled up as fast as possible and have a second one and start filling up the second one and leave the first one alone. Sooner or later, the natural rotting process will take over and it will break down. It may be the case that you're adding some carbon, but you still need more greens. What I used to do when I used to compost like this is I would run my mower 
And when I added, you know, every once in a while I would add leaves and grass together and you could get some hot composting going on and begin to break things down. Can you turn it into a worm composter? Yeah, I mean, all you really got to do is get yourself a whole bunch of red wigglers, you know, Mr. Jim's Worm Farm or something like that is the place I always get mine, and throw them in there, and and, and life will begin to, 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 to do what life does. Um, then you can just keep adding your scraps and stuff like that, take stuff out of it. In your climate, you know, I have some concern about the worms dying in the winter if they don't have a place they get sheltered. If it's too hot, you can, you can cook your worms, so you have to have a nice shady location Uh, with, you know, they'll go down into the ground and protect themselves as long as they can get access to that. And, uh, they will live in there and they will do their job and they will do everything for you. And you'll have no problem getting beautiful compost from them and worm castings and all of that great stuff. And, uh, they will maintain their population. The more you feed them, the more they will grow. When you cut their feedback, they'll stop producing, uh, offspring and they will adapt to that. And as long as they don't get too hot, or too cold, they will live in there infinity as long as you feed them. And your biggest concern with an outdoor worm bin like that is fire ants, and I don't think you have that problem that far north just yet. So uh, you can do that. What you won't get is the worm juice or worm tea. So if you wanted to be able to get the liquid tea, which I think is actually a really great soil amendment, um, you'd want to go to a more conventional worm bin that allows you to collect that worm juice that comes out of there and you, you know, use that at about 25% to, uh, water. So if you use a gallon, you know, a quart to, uh, to, to, you know, to make up a full gallon. So one quart of worm juice to three quarts of, uh, water, man, that's a, that's way more concentrated than you need, but it's really dynamite. You know, it won't burn your plants. It's good stuff. Um, it's definitely worth doing, but I wouldn't do it just to do that. Right, So my, my only caveat with what you're asking is, if you want that component of worm composting, you'd be better off that way. What you don't want to do, once you do start worm composting, is you don't want to be in there turning it. You don't want to be adding extra nitrogen and carbon. You don't want to start a hot cycle, uh, because when that does come up to 160 degrees or higher with composting, it'll cook your worms. So once you switch the worms, you got to understand, we're not turning stuff anymore. Right, We're putting in the top and taking off the bottom at that point. As long as you do that, you'll be fine. Um, I do think a more conventional worm bin with like multiple layers and we keep adding new top and more stuff and coming out the bottom and collecting that worm juice makes, makes a little bit more sense. But I wouldn't fault you for just throwing some worms in there and, and going forward with it. I have a quick follow-up to the... Um, because I, I forgot to do this right, right after it. I had planned on it. Um, but Megan commented on the blog, and I have a quick, quick follow-up to the heartworm issue. So uh, I'd actually be interested to, uh, to, to hear back from our MD Lee that, that sent the information in about it as to how this works out. Because I've heard this in a lot of places. I do believe it's true. Megan says, Can we make it aware to anyone who listens to this podcast that ivermectin is used off-label for heartworms in dogs and is a common ingredient in prescription dog wormers. But there is a gene, specifically the ABCB1 gene, in herding breeds that causes life-threatening allergic reactions, convulsion, and death. So any dog who has any possibility of even a little bit of herding breed in them should be tested for the ABCB1 gene before using this drug. This is part of the reason things like this require a prescription. If you're going to use anything off-label for yourself or an animal, be sure to do a lot of research first. Yeah, I agree with that. I would say this. If your dog is on a 
medication that is primarily or exclusively um, ivermectin already, then we know we don't have that problem or we'd already have a dead dog. So I guess my question would be to the veterinarians out there or the, the, the people out there that run herding breeds, what do you use as a heartworm preventative? Because if ivermectin will kill your dog, you either let them be at risk of heartworms or you do something else. So what do we do for a dog that has this ABCB1 gene and can't take ivermectin as a heartworm preventative? I'd, I'd like to know. And again, you guys should know, like, I think this idea of moving your dogs to direct ivermectin and saving money and, and, and getting out of the scam of we need to test them every year, even though they're already on it, uh, is a great idea. But I see that more as a good thing for people that already have a dog on that because then we know. But what do you do for the herding breed? I'd like to know that myself. And is that possibly safer for all of them? Or is it more dangerous and that's why we only use it for herding breeds because it's what we have to fall back to? That's an interesting question. Anybody that can help, I'd love to hear from you. Here's an interesting one that I'm going to be brief on just to the time constraints of the show and because of some limited knowledge on, on the thing anyway. It says, Jack, do you have any canoe-specific fishing and camping advice? I bought a 10-foot canoe, uh, canoe recently and want to use it for fishing. have a couple of river trips for it this summer. You talked about fishing from a boat in previous episodes, but I'm not sure how much does and doesn't apply to canoes. Keep up the good work, Matt, in Nebraska. Um, well, I will say this, and I guarantee you with 10-foot, you, you don't have what I'm going to say. But if you had emailed me before you bought a canoe and said, I'm thinking about buying a canoe for fishing, I would have said, get the biggest canoe you can afford and transport and get one with a, with a, uh, a flat transom. Okay. Or a flat back. Right. And what I mean by that is they make canoes now that if you're sitting in the back of them, you know, it's pointed in the front. And you always think of the canoe like you saw in the cartoon with Yogi Bear and the Ranger, right? Hey, hey, boo-boo, what's in that picnic basket? Remember that? And they always have the canoe with the two big points. Well, instead of a point in the back, it's got a flat transom. You know what you can do with that? You can take a trolling motor and stick it in your boat. You can take a, 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 a battery and stick it in your boat and a trolling motor and attach it to that transom, and you can motor around with a trolling motor in a canoe. I think that's pretty cool. I would have also said to get one with some built-in rod holders that's kind of set up for fishing which is probably not what you've done. But a 10-foot canoe, that means one dude can grab it and kind of throw it over the shoulder and drag it. It's got a lot of mobility, so that's good too. So don't feel bad about that. I'm just trying to help more than one person on this show whenever I answer any questions. So I'm saying if you're thinking about getting into canoe fishing, then think about, because I've never heard anybody, once they bought a boat, say, damn, I wish it was smaller when I'm on the water. Okay. Um, the next thing about canoes, I remember when I was a kid, There was this place we used to go, and you could rent canoes. And I always wanted to rent a canoe. So finally one time we got a canoe, and there's this little cove back in this lake, and it was a pretty good-sized lake. And my dad says, well, go have fun, but don't, don't do nothing stupid. So we go rolling around in the cove, and we're just happy. And we came out of that cove out on the main lake, and that wind hit us, and it scared the shit out of us. Canoes don't do well in choppy water. Rivers are one of the places they're really suited for. But open, like if you're going camping on a lake or something like that, when you're looking at selecting a campsite, you want something that's a bit sheltered because they don't do well. You get any kind of wind on, a, on an open lake. That would be another piece of advice that I would have for you. Um, I would suggest that probably your, 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 your biggest thing you can do to have happiness with fishing in any boat is think everything through and try to have everything you need but as little as possible in the boat with you. And I would say that you might even consider with something like a canoe, like if you want to take a, a cooler, 
finding some sort of like buoyant, because they make tow behind buoyant type coolers that you can kind of just attach to the boat and just, you know, as long as you're not going to be in, again, heavy wind or something like that anyway. Uh, but faster moving river water, this may not work. But on, on lakes and calm stretches and stuff, that might just free up space in the boat, depending on someone else is going to be there. Um, you, you probably, I've seen it done, but you're probably not going to mount a depth finder or anything like that in your canoe. Uh, making sure you have a really good way to transport it, like so you know it's not going to blow off on the highway or something like that. Um, but enjoy it. And the biggest thing I think would be your first trip, make it short and brief. Don't, don't try to spend eight hours in the boat. You know, uh, go camp somewhere, like you said. Make fishing a thing you do while you're camping, not the thing you're doing and you're camping so you can do it. It'll give you, cause you're gonna, what's gonna happen is, I can't tell you exactly what to do. You're gonna get out in the water and go, I wish I had this, I wish I had this. You know, I didn't have that. Um, sunscreen, oh my god, boating period. Boating, tubing, rafting, sunscreen, sunscreen, sunscreen. Uh, you will burn in ways you cannot imagine. And a lot of times, especially when it's cooler and breezy and it's nice on the water, you don't even know you're burning. And then, then when you get back, you start to feel it, and you hold your hand over your arm, and you feel like you could cook an egg on your forearm. I, I've, I've been burned bad, but I've seen people burn worse. So that's a big thing is a good quality sunscreen. And, uh, you know, with river fishing, whether it's a canoe, a kayak, or wading, it really comes down to reading the water. That's what's going to make you a successful fisherman. Being able to look at water and say, okay, it's fast-moving water. The water slows down right there. There's an eddy behind that cutout. So we have the fast-moving water rolling to the slow and this kind of back current flow rate in there. It's probably deep in there. That's probably going to hold fish. That's going to be a huge part of your success river fishing beyond the boat. So I hope that helps. I can't get too specific into what to do with canoes, honestly, because... My, my experience with them is limited. I'm more of a lake guy when it comes to boats. With rivers and streams, I'm more of a guy that likes to, you know, put on a pair of waders when it's cold or wear an old pair of shoes and cut off shorts when it's nice out and just walk and, and wade and always be going upstream because the fish are always, not always, but generally pointed upstream so they're less likely to see you approach. And, and that would be something about your canoe as well, I guess I would say. Unless you're doing a down river float trip, where you're parking a vehicle and you're going to take it out, right? If you're going to park, spend some time on the water and come back to your vehicle, whether you're rowing, motoring, I don't care, any boat in, in water, uh, moving water that you're going to do that in, you go upstream first and you come back downstream to your vehicle. I don't care if you've got a big old outboard, 150 horsepower outboard and it's a big river where you have no problem. No, because the water will always bring you home. If you have a motor failure or you get tired or whatever, but if you if you go downstream first and you have some sort of problem, it will just keep keep taking you further away from where you want to be. And that may be one of the most important things I've said on this one. Uh, let's take one more at least. Yeah, this one's a doozy, and I'm gonna go short on it, even though it's complex. But just I like when somebody sends me something, like that, I feel like responding on some level because you could tell it's a big issue and they put a lot into it. And I know a lot of people go through similar things, though maybe not identical. So this one comes from Brian. Brian says, I have a question about receiving land from my in-laws and was wondering what your thoughts are. Details. Currently, my family, family of four, and I live in New England. My wife is from Minnesota. We met and married in the military. We moved back to New England six years ago. I am mortgaging the home we live in, work a government job, and increasingly getting frustrated with my old job. The house we live in is a little too small for us, and the bills are higher than we thought they would be for the size of the house. 
so there's not much extra money for expansion. We live near my family, and my wife manufactures issues with them. She has a rocky relationship with her mom and stepdad, and lately things seem to be going pretty well, but they can change on a dime. She spoke with her mom the other day, and her stepdad's her stepdad was looking to update his will. He's 82 in relatively good health. There is an offer in a spoken agreement for our wife to get the house and 10 acres of land for free or nearly free. We don't have any details. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there. Everything else I'm about to read and all the advice that I'm going to give you means nothing until you get details. Like, there's no decision to be made right now because that doesn't, does that mean he's going to put you in the will and you get it when he dies? Does that mean you get it now? Because it sounds like you think you get it now, but does it really mean that? Does that mean you get to live in it until he dies and then you inherit? Like, how is that going to, you need details. Lots of details before, and you need to set your wife down and just say, honey, listen, I'm willing to look at this with an open mind, but until we know exactly what they're proposing, we shouldn't get in any fights or arguments about it because we don't even know what we're deciding yet. We, we, so let's just get, let's find out exactly what they're thinking so we can discuss that logically and rationally. Okay. Okay. Right now, everything is just talk. Nothing is finalized. I voiced some apprehension to her, and she's acting like I'm trying to pull the rug out from under her. She is ready to make a life-altering decision now. I am not opposed to the move, but there are a few, some things we need to know before I say yes to the deal. Issues I have are, one, I work for the government and have a number of years in, but not quite enough for any retirement time, so I would need to find some sort of government job or rejoin the private sector. I'm also in the reserves and would need to transfer to a new base. There's not anything close in that area, which that's going to, you know, your, your weekend a month and two weeks a year, you can have a long commute. Big time, right? Okay. One of the reasons I chose to move back to that area is to be close to my dad and grandfather. If between now and when this property is available, they die, I won't have anything to tie me to this area. So, okay, so now are you getting, see, again, so you're, You're, I don't really understand, like you're saying, if your parents die before it's time for you to move, then there'll be another reason for you to stay. Okay, well, that makes sense. But if you're saying, like, you might not be getting the property for so long, that might happen anyway. Like, again, you need details, okay? Then there's an issue of making a big cross-country trip of moving our crap. When we did this, when we left Florida six years ago, my wife did very little to help, and she says, trust me, I will do more to help this time. But when we moved from our apartment that she hated to the house she desperately wanted, she did very little to help. I say this as gingerly as possible. Dude, it sounds like your wife has some problems with stepping up, okay? And saying you're going to step up and stepping up are different things. And uh, this is a delicate one. I'm just going to say that, though. Finally, and a big reason I don't really want to accept the property is that my parents, my in-laws are control freaks. Major went, went, went. And gee, do you think I saw that coming? Do you think I, I knew that was coming? I'm... I was like reading this whole thing and going, I know what's coming at the end, but here it is. I don't want to get this property and have an issue with them, and they think they can use this property as a leveraging chip. If we were to take the property, I think it would be best to get some sort of contract to have it in our name and flat out purchase the property from them. Any advice from you being an outside party would be helpful. Thank you, Brian. Okay. Okay, here's what I'm going to tell you. Your, your thing at the end is exactly how it has to be. If what they're proposing is they're going to give you this property as an advance on inheritance, then what I think you should say is, you know what? We don't expect that. Um, why don't we do this? Why don't we come to an agreed-upon price that's below market value and let us pay you at least a portion of the property's value? You can use it for your retirement, 
And if you really feel that you really just want us to have this property, take the money, put it away, and save it in case you run out of retirement money. If you need it then, it's there. And if not, you can just will it back to us. But we'll, we'll effectively buy the property from you and we'll own it. Or I would not touch it with a 12-foot pole. I wouldn't get I wouldn't touch it with a 1,200-mile pole. I'm not going to, in that whole thing you described, I'm not going to live on a property that somebody else owns. If they have, especially when they have a reputation for trying to be controlling. Because in-laws typically have that problem. I mean, Dorothy and I go out of our way to stay out of our kids' business because we know that it's a typical problem. But most people don't. And they always think they know better than their kids because they remember when their kids were kids. And they have a hard time understanding, like, once your kid's in, like, their mid-20s, you need to shut your hole 90% of the time you think you need to be saying something. And let them do it. And unless they're doing something that directly affects you or is going to get them killed or put in prison, shut up. They're adults. They're making their own decision. And you're telling me these people are not like that at all. So... The only way you can have that situation would be some way that the property is transferred into ownership to you and your wife. Here's another reason. I don't mean to be a procrastinator of bad things, but what if y'all get divorced and you've put your heart and soul into this place and her parents own it? What do you get? Seriously. You get nothing. It's not community property. I hate to be that blunt, but that's the truth. You get nothing. Maybe you got 10 years from now before that happens. And, 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 and then, yeah, they're still around and it's hers because they say so because it's theirs. And how can you be in a marriage like that? See, to me, I, I, I don't get it when people say, like, well, we're married, but we keep separate bank accounts. <laughs> If you don't trust somebody with your money, don't trust them to lay down next to you and sleep next to you at night, every night of your life. To make you breakfast when they can put cyanide in it. You don't trust them with your money. You don't trust them with your life. You don't trust them with your kids. You don't trust them with your future. A marriage is adjoining. This is my opinion, and you don't have to follow it, but I'm telling you how I feel. There's, there's a line in the Bible about not, being un, about, you know, not being unequally yoked. And while I'm not a religious person, I, I, I look for wisdom wherever I see it. And to me, that's more than just the person is of a different faith. It's the person's not a full partner in the marriage. And I see that as the number one thing destroying marriages today in America. It's not infidelity. It's not debt. Those are symptoms of the unequal yoking of a marriage. Where one par partner is doing the heavy lifting and the other one is dragging their ass. And complaining and making excuses while the other one is making things happen. Because it's the same thing as business. You can make money or you can make excuses, but you can't make both. So you can make success or you can make excuses, but you can't make both. That's that's the truth. And, and I mean, I wouldn't have her listen to this because I'm coming way too much down on your side here. Because to be fair to her, I only have your story. And to be flat out blunt, you could be full of shit. You're probably not, but you could be. And the odds are you're probably being just a little bit unfair because that's what we tend to do. But I'm even factoring you being a little bit unfair, and I'm I'm being hard on her. So you got to take the if you have her listen, she's really gonna be angry. So I wouldn't have her listening to this. But I would sit down with her and I would say, honey, I I want to talk about this. And number one, I think we need the full details first, so we know what we're discussing, and we shouldn't have any disagreement or any argument until we know that. And I think that's a reasonable thing, don't you? And then shut your effing mouth. 
If you say anything before she stops talking after that, you will lose and you will be wrong even if you're right. Because that's a reasonable assertion, but you need to let her talk herself through it until she's done. And then I think the next conversation, once you have the details, is going to be things like, Honey, I know you said that you would be more of a help this time. How do you plan on doing that? What do you plan on doing to be more helpful this time? Because if I'm going to take all this on, I need to know that we're partners in this. That it's not you making the decision and me doing all the work, because we're supposed to be partners in what we do. To be honest, I think y'all need some counseling. Now, again, I'm getting one side from a letter. But what I'm hearing is a man that's frustrated because his wife always wants to do whatever she wants to do but doesn't want to do any of the work to get there. I could be totally wrong, and you know your wife and your situation a hell of a lot better than me, so if that's not the case, don't let me justify that in your head. right? Because I don't do remote control psychology. But I've, I've seen enough of this to go it's, it's possible or even probable that this is the case. You've got in-laws that want control and they see this as a method of control and hell, it'll get their grandkids out where they can see them all the time, right? Okay, well, what about your what about your dad? Does he want his grandkids? Right? And you always have to try to find a balance in between there and you can't position yourself in a way where both of them have easy access to your kids and you. You have to pick one or the other. So in the end, I think you have to do whatever makes the most sense for you, not for your dad and grandfather and not for her parents. I think one of the biggest problems that we have in America today in marriage, and it's another big part of why we have divorces, is that parents are putting the needs of their their extended families or their children before the needs of the couple itself. Okay, Your parents and her parents, unless something drastically goes wrong, will pass away and leave you behind. Your kids will grow up and move out of the house and have their own lives and leave you behind. The two of you, unless you end up split up, are the ones that are going to be with each other till death do you part. And that means that the, uh, the 100% of the focus for what the future holds needs to be on the stability of you as a unit. Well, I want to take care of my kids. Well, wake up. Wake up, America. Wake up. Wake the F up. If you can't be stable as a couple, how the hell are you going to take care of your kids and raise them right? And that's, that's the, the, the more, well, I'm worried about my mom. Okay, well, she's laying in a hospital. She needs you to take care of her. That's fine. But it's just because she wants something that's in opposition to, you know, your marriage. Well, then your mom can piss off until she figures out reality because she's a grown woman just like you or you are a grown man just like you are. And you need to figure this shit out and stop putting your needs above another couple's needs. Because they should be secure enough in their relationship that they're putting their marriage and their relationship first. And they may just be reaching out and want to help you. I don't know. I know that whenever I get a story from one side, there's always the potential that I'm getting the jaded story from one side and it's not the full picture. So I can't make a full judgment. But you have to figure it out for yourself. But I would just say anybody in a situation where in-laws want to give you a piece of land to live on, great. How much do we pay you for it? Well, we just want you to have it. Yeah, but you know, when we uh, transfer the title to us, then, you know, we're going to have to have some amount of money. So, oh, well, you weren't going to train. Well, then we just think we'll do something else. I'm not about that. I just see that as a freaking recipe for disaster because it's going to be, well, you know, we let you all live here when you're deciding, well, you know what? My son's not going to go to college. Well, you know, 
we did this so that our grandchildren could have more opportunities. That kind of shit. And you want to talk about a way to destroy a marriage, interjection from a third party like that, absolutely cancerous. So don't allow it. All right, guys, with that knocked out, I want to remind you that you can help support this show by doing your shopping when you're going to shop on Amazon, which we talked about a lot today, through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. You go there, and you'll see our daily Amazon reviews. And the, uh, the Amazon review that I have for you today, we kind of talked about a little bit when we're talking about the foliar feeding. I have a four-part regime that I use in my gardening. And it's, I do some other things too, but these are the four things that I do and it, that really makes a difference. One, I use a, a mycorrhizal fungal inoculant when I plant plants on their roots or when I plant seeds into the bed. Uh, and I have a product I recommend for that. Number two, I do a foliar spray with garret juice and liquid kelp. So those are the other two of the four. Garret juice and liquid kelp. And number four, I use a good quality organic solid slow-release fertilizer. And the one I've recommended for years now is Dr. Earth Golden Premium Gold. It is the best I've found. It, the, the one big thing I liked about it, and it was what first keyed me in on it, is when you got your NPK ratio, uh, your nitrous, your phosphorus, and your potassium, it is a 4-4-4. It is perfectly balanced. It gives all three nutrients equally. It's a solid, slow-release formula. It also has its own... Um, uh, mycorrhizal fungi uh, inoculation within it and uh, it, it just does a great job. I have a picture in my review today of one of my uh, my wicking beds uh, and that's been planted for about five weeks and it's just exploding and it's using that four part regime and the reason I like a solid fertilizer is because we're already doing a foliar feed with the liquid kelp and the garret juice well anytime we want if we want to do a quick kind of liquid boost to the plant, we can just mix up a little bit more concentrated version into a soil drench. So we have, within that regime, a liquid fertilizer. And the best way to think of it is, imagine that a liquid fertilizer or a foliar feed is like giving a patient who needs a drug an, in an intravenous injection. Straight in, it works really fast, but it doesn't last that long. Where when we take something like a, 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 a what am I, geez, I'm losing my mind here this, this uh, week, a solid fertilizer, we get a slow release, like taking a slow release capsule that, that helps the patient for a longer period of time. And this stuff not only fertilizes the plants, it helps build that soil. It, it really does. So, again, Dr. Earth's Premium Gold, you can find it at tspaz.com or just go to survivalpodcast.com if you're listening to the show you know, within a day or two. If it's published, it starts scrolling down, you'll see it. And remember, whenever you're going to shop on Amazon, no matter what you're going to buy, if you go to tspaz.com first, And then you can see a link. You can click there to see the deals of the day on Amazon. From that point, you can search, buy whatever you want. doesn't matter what it is. As an affiliate, we get credit for the sale. So I appreciate all of you that have been doing your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, and check out Dr. Earth Gold Premium Organic Fertilizer today. Remember, if it ain't organic or better, I don't use it when it comes to the stuff that I'm going to eat. I'm growing out of my own garden. Next up, let's talk about the song of the day today. This is a song that I kind of wish would have fell on a Friday. 
Of course, we started way back in the 30s, 1930s, doing a song that was first the number one song of the year, and then we kind of transitioned as, well, number one songs got worse and worse, and by the 1990s they would be unusable, so we transitioned to a song that kind of typifies the year that came out in that year. This one is a Friday song, man. It really is. And those of you that grew up in the 70s and the 80s and even the early 90s, when I tell you what it is, you're going to go, I remember walking into a club or a bar or somebody's garage and hearing this song blaring and just feeling good listening to it. And You Shook Me All Night Long by ACDC. It's, uh, it's probably one of the most iconic songs of about 1980 when it came out up to about 1995 in that whole realm of especially young people, if you were young during that time and kind of into the bar club scene. This was a song that even if you were in a you know a cowboy redneck bar in Texas, every once in a while they break out of the country music, this would be one of those songs that would get played. It really is. John Adam, who uh, has been picking these uh, out for us, says, Off the first album with lead singer Brian Johnson, who replaced lead singer Bron Scott, After he died uh, due to death by misadventure, a.k.a. alcohol poisoning, hardcore fans will always like Bon Scott better, including me. Most people 40s and older will remember this song being played a lot, especially in school dances. It continues to be a favorite for classic rock radio stations today. Indeed, I'll say this about the whole Bon Scott was better. Yeah, but he wasn't here for the last 30, 40 years, was he? Because he killed himself. And uh, I think Brian Johnson did a, a, a fine job as a lead singer of ACDC. And I thought instead of talking about the song, I would tell you a little bit about what's going on right now. So it turns out that um, one of the members of uh, ACDC, the original members, ended up with Alzheimer's disease, uh, that being Malcolm Young. And ACDC has gone on like a worldwide tour to raise awareness of Alzheimer's and kind of support Malcolm Young. And um, along with this, I think um, Brian Johnson's 69 years old now. And basically his doctor said, you can't tour anymore, and if you keep doing this, you're going to go completely deaf, and you've got other health problems as well. And Axel Rose is the current front man for ACDC in their concerts which is kind of crazy to me in a way. And he's, he's still, you know, playing and touring with, with, with Guns N' Roses. So it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. But it turns out that there's a group of people who've gotten together and are trying to sue ACDC because they announced this tour and then people bought tickets and, uh, then Johnson can't do the tour. He's 69 freaking years old. Um, I pulled up some of the videos of ACDC playing live with Axel. It doesn't sound that great, but you got to understand, it's all like um, uh, amphitheater acoustics. It's all people videoing from like a cell phone or something like that. It's not going to sound that great. But when you look at the band members, the uh, what's his name? Um, I can't think of his name now. The one that always dresses like a schoolboy, uh, Angus, right? So Angus... Angus looks like some derelict old crazy guy that escaped a mental institution and grabbed a guitar somewhere and some kid's clothes along the way now uh, when you see him playing. But, I mean, what more can you ask the people that are, you know, in their, their 60s to still be jamming their ass off? This song is part of my youth, and uh, I know the subject matter might rub some people the wrong way when you know what the song's really about and all, but, man, this song lit up the radio 
for a decade and a half. It was on all the time, and like uh, like John says, it's still on on the classic radio stations today. It makes me feel good. I'm going to share it with you today because I bet a lot of you that grew up in the 80s will remember this song and it'll bring memories back for you. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.